This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Tomorrow, March 16th, is the 50th anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, the day Americans killed more than 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians in one hamlet. Most people don't know how it ended. An American helicopter pilot landed there and at gunpoint told American troops to stop the killing, and they did. That helicopter pilot was Hugh Thompson. He's the man who stopped the My Lai Massacre. I spoke with him in February 2000 for KPFK. We'll listen to that interview later in this hour. Also later in this hour, Disneyland is not the happiest place on earth for the people who work there. Many of them don't make enough money to live on. Peter Dreyer will report. First up today, David Korn on Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, the big new book on Trump and the Russians has just been published. It's called Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. For that, we turn to one of the co-authors, David Korn. He's a veteran Washington journalist and political commentator, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine, and an analyst for MSNBC. He's the author of three previous New York Times bestsellers, and now it's pretty obvious there will be a fourth. Rachel Maddow calls David and his co-author Michael Isakoff, quote, two of the best investigative reporters we have in this country, a superpower reporting team, close quote. He's also an old friend. David Korn, congratulations on the new book, and welcome back. Great to be with you, John. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with today's big story. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, has subpoenaed the Trump Organization to turn over documents, including some related on Russia. The Trump Organization, we haven't heard that much about. It's not the Trump campaign. What does this mean? You know, one of my least favorite cliches, John, is the whole business about the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) But I struggle to find a better metaphor for Robert Mueller's investigation. You know, he continues to, you know, show that he's looking at all sorts of things that are not necessarily on the radar screen of journalists, even such as myself and Mike Isikoff, who cover this stuff almost on a daily basis. And, of course, Mueller has access to subpoena power and records here and overseas that we don't have that allows him to develop entirely new lines of inquiry. And so with the news today that he has subpoenaed records from the Trump organization is, you know, may well be highly significant on a number of fronts. As we talk about, or talk about, as we write and describe in our book, we believe that Donald Trump's business deals in Russia, particularly in the last couple of years, starting with the Miss Universe contest that he owned and that he held there in, in Moscow in 2013, are essential to understanding his relationship and his attitudes towards Putin and towards Russia. And, you know, we can get into some of the, the details, but we do know, as, as we chronicle in the book, that while he, even while he was running for president, and this is, a, I, I think, uh, an issue that's been reported but never got sufficient attention, but while he was, re- while he was running for president, he was secretly trying to strike a deal with a somewhat shifty Russian company through a former felon, an American, and to do so 
you can't you can't proceed and to build a tower with your name on it in Moscow if Vladimir Putin is annoyed with you. Yes. So so Donald Trump at the same time he's campaigning for president. He's not telling the public about the side deal he has going, and he's making public statements that praise Putin um, that are puzzling to people. But now it's pretty damn clear that one thing he didn't want to do was get in the way of his own deal. So I don't know. We don't know the details of what Robert Mueller is looking for when he goes to the Trump organization. But one possibility is records involving Trump's attempts to strike deals with Russian companies and banks that are owned, or at least partially owned, by the Russian government. So you show in in your book, Russian Roulette, how Donald Trump has been working to build a hotel in Moscow for a long time, especially over the last couple of years, starting at a time when nobody thought he would be president. Of course, he's built many Trump hotels all over the world and many other places. Why isn't there a Trump hotel in Moscow? It's really an interesting question. And, you know, that question in particular is what prompted the whole beginning of the Steele project, Christopher David Steele and his memos, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but for 30 years, since starting in the 80s, in nearly 30 years, he was trying to do business in Russia, and, and, you know, and it was hard, and the first deals that he, he, he tried to, to achieve was when it was the Soviet Union and the Soviet government insisted on owning 51% of whatever joint venture they entered into with Donald Trump, and he didn't want to do that. And then every couple of years, every five, six years, he announced another Moscow project, and it petered out. Interestingly enough, the one that probably got closest to fruition came out of that Miss Universe contest in 2013. And people who worked on that project, the Miss Universe organization and elsewhere, told us that they saw the Miss Universe contest, or they at least that Trump saw it, as a stepping stone to get more business in Russia. And, and it seemed as if he was on his way. His partner in that endeavor was an oligarch named Eris Egalerov, who was known as Putin's builder. He was a construction guy, a development guy, and he was very, very close to Putin. So can you imagine Trump's excitement when he learns that this guy wants to bring him and bring Miss universe to Mar- Moscow. And this is when Trump really begins to fawn over Putin and starts tweeting and saying statements that are just over the top complimentary of a guy running a repressive autocratic regime. And it kind of, but the plan kind of works. At the end of Miss Universe in November 2013, they announce that Trump and Erdogan are proceeding with a major development that would include a Trump Tower and that it's going to be financed by Spurbank, which is, a, which is owned, majority owned, by the Russian government. Trump was entering into business with the Russian government <laughs> at the end of 2013. And, and he puts Don Jr. in charge. A few months later, Ivanka flies in and turns sights of where this tower is going to go. What got in the way was a little thing called the annexation of Crimea. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's coming it's back Trump. to me now. 
Yeah, Trump doesn't. You know, he just doesn't care that that Putin's government has passed a law that outlaws people talking about gay rights and homosexuality. He doesn't care that this is a regime uh, that turns a blind eye to the assassination of dissidents and journalists. He doesn't care about Chechnya and human rights abuses. None of that. But when this, you know, the, the 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 annexation of Crimea, well, he didn't really care that much about that either. But sanctions came from the Obama administration and from the European Union, and the Russian economy started tanking because of these sanctions, and they hit, the sanctions eventually hit the very bank, Spurbank, that was financing this deal. And one of Trump's associates in the Miss Universe contest uh, told us that he believes that Trump's negative view of sanctions, which he's criticized Obama for when he was running for uh, president, came about because the sanctions that Obama and the EU put in prevented this deal from happening. Oh, I promise <laughs> to tell you one thing. One more thing. Yeah, one, 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 and another thing. Um, that the fact that Trump had tried again and again and again to get deals in Russia and failed was picked up on by a guy named Glenn Simpson. Who, you ask, is Glenn Simpson? I know you know, but just to make sure everybody out there knows, he ran a research operation called Fusion GPS that had been hired first by a, a conservative group to do opposition research on Trump. And then when it seemed Trump was going to get the nomination, um, Glenn took the project to the lawyer for the Democratic Party and the Hillary Clinton campaign who started paying him. And at that point, Glenn said, you know, I think we should look into Trump's dealings in Russia, Glenn was a former Wall Street Journal uh, reporter who specialized in covering Russian oligarchs and, and Russian corruption and money laundering issues. And to him, it had always seemed funny that Trump had kept going to Russia, kept trying to get these deals, and they never came through. So partly because of that, he reached out to a guy he knew, his name was Christopher Steele, and said, hey, can you start looking, start looking into Trump and Russia for me? And the Christopher Steele dossier we first learned about from the work of uh, David Korn and Mother Jones. He's the author of the book Russia Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Now I want to talk about the campaign, Russia and the campaign. Reading your book, I realized that the turning point in the campaign should have been the news that we got in early October, a month before Election Day, when the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Homeland Security issued a statement saying the intelligence community was, quote, confident that the Russian government directed, close quote, the hacking of the Democratic National Committee's email system. This is sort of like the Watergate break-in story of 2016, except we know who did it. My question for you is, why didn't that become the dominant theme for Hillary Clinton and for the media. Russia hacked the DNC email. That should have been the center of everything. Yeah, not that they just hacked the email, that they was part of this information warfare campaign to, you know, tilt the election. Uh, 
And you know, in the book, we describe how long it took for the Obama administration to put out that statement, what went into that statement. We break the news that the near-to-final version of that statement named Putin as the guy behind this operation. And then at the end of the day, they thought that might be too provocative. So they just said senior most levels of the Russian government. People knew what that meant. Um, so that came out on, on October 7th. Well, two other things happened on October 7th. First... There was a tape from this TV show, show called Access Hollywood. What a day! Which, you know, <laughs> what a day stuff, that was! So you know, you know, so literally, we have a scene in the book in which reporters, you know, the the, the statements issued uh, that that Russia, you know, is behind this attack on the on the election, and reporters are on the phone with Jay Johnson and people who work at the Department of Homeland Security, which who were one of the agencies that put out the statement. And while they're saying, oh, my God, this is a big story, we're going to play it big on nightly news tonight, they go, oh, wait a second, oh, 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 got to go, click. What happened was, an hour or two after the statement came out, the Access Hollywood grabbed them by the you-know-what tape came out, and that kind of started blowing up the campaign. An hour after that story came out, WikiLeaks started releasing the John Podesta emails. Podesta, of course, was the uh, campaign CEO for Hillary Clinton. His emails had been hacked months and months earlier uh, by by Russians. The Russians or WikiLeaks had been sitting on them, waiting for an opportune moment, and then they started releasing them, not all at once, which was WikiLeaks' usual operation. If you believe in transparency and your accountability group, they just put out everything you have. What they did, first time in their history... They started leaking these documents. They had about 60,000 or so of them, 2,000 to 3,000 uh, each day. They dragged it out. They made sure that every day there'd be more news nuggets, tidbits from the Podesta emails. So you ask why the Russian attack, it really is an attack on American democracy, wasn't the central feature of the, of the campaign. Well, you know, I have to say, a lot of journalists paid far more attention first to the Access Hollywood tape for the obvious reasons, and it's hard to fault them for that, but then to the Podesta emails and all the little tidbits that were coming out. And the, we tell this story, it's kind of tragic. Um, you know, you know I, am, I don't carry water for the Hillary for Hillary Clinton or the campaign, but my heart, <laughs> you know, you know, feels for the guys and gals on the Hillary Clinton campaign who kept trying to convince reporters, look what's happened here. The Russians have committed something far greater and bigger than Watergate, and you're just asking us about this email in which one Clintonite is dumping on another Clintonite, and you want to get all the background on that. And that just went on for, th- you know, for four solid weeks. And they could never get, and any time they talked about the Russians doing this, a lot of the political journalists said, well, you know, you're just trying to spin the story your way and deflect from these emails that show the rivalries and the misstatements or the, or the awkward and inconvenient remarks that Hillary Clinton and others have made. And they just wouldn't examine this. Meanwhile, there are reporters like my co-author on the book, Michael Isakoff, and I would put myself in this category, who are trying to find out more information about what the Russians are doing and what the FBI is investigating. 
There are certainly signs that the FBI is interested in all this. And it's a really hard nut to crack. People are not leaking. They, they think Hillary Clinton's going to win, and there's no reason to start leaking information about secret investigations, top secret, highly classified. Um, and it just becomes, you know, it becomes exceedingly difficult. And, you know, the FBI, you know, Jim Comey refuses to talk about these investigations when asked by members of Congress. And, um, you know, my, and this, is, this part is just a hunch. I think he's telling some folks in the media, you know, there's nothing really major there. There's no big story with Trump and Russia because he doesn't want people getting too close to the investigation. That's very sensitive. Um, it's a complete breakdown. Uh, and in part, the Obama administration, after putting out that statement, they said nothing else of, of, of major importance on the subject. They wanted the statement to speak for itself. We, we describe all these internal debates and deliberations inside the White House about what to do. Uh, that, you know, they believe that if they made too much of this, Trump would accuse them of politicizing the election and of rigging it, which he was already doing without any evidence whatsoever. And they also thought, well, Hillary's probably going to win. Let's just get through Election Day. They knew that the Russians had been probing election state systems, and they were worried about the Russians doing something to mess up the actual vote counting. So they said, let's get through Election Day and then, you know, revisit all this. But, you know, that was somewhat of a miscalculation. We've only got uh, three or four minutes left here. The the Republican position now, at least of, oh, say, the House uh, Intel Committee Republicans, is that, yes, there was Russian interference with the campaign, but they have found no evidence of collusion on the part of the Trump campaign. Putin didn't want Hillary to be president, because of, especially because of the, uh, of the sanctions after the Ukraine situation. Putin wanted Trump to be president because of all the reasons we've talked about. But the Republicans say they have found no evidence on the House Intel Committee investigations of collusion on the part of the Trump campaign. What have you found? Well, Michael Isagoff, my co-author, and I consider our book to be kind of the antidote to the non-investigation <laughs> yes. of the House Republicans on the Intelligence Committee. It's just a travesty that they're shutting things down without interviewing everybody, without subpoenaing documents. And I've never seen in all my decades of covering Washington, politicians so in the tank for the president of their own party that they literally, literally refuse to recognize a national security threat. Um, you know, collusion is a, you know, has been, is often, I think, misdefined. It doesn't mean that Donald Trump sat down with Russian agents to plan out which documents to hack and where to release them through WikiLeaks and when and why and all that stuff. We had throughout the campaign, throughout the summer, after, after it was known that the Russians had, had, had breached the DNC and even had been involved in the, in the dumping of information, you had members of the Trump campaign in contact with Russians trying to forge a bond, a back-channel communication. And what does that do? That sends a message to the Russians that even though you're attacking us, we still want to be your friends. We still want to work with you. How enabling, encouraging, emboldening is that. And then at the same time, you have Trump and the campaign publicly saying, this isn't happening. Imagine, John, you're on a street corner. There's a bank robbery going on in the bank that you're standing in front of. You know it's happening. You see it. People walk by and you say, there is no bank robbery. That 
I would say, is a form of collusion. You are protecting, you're covering up for the deed that is happening. In the book, uh, Michael Isagoff and I call it aiding and abetting. They, you know, Trump in mid-August is told in an intelligence briefing, which he receives as the nominee, that Russia's behind all this, that the intelligence is conclusive. And still, he comes out of that meeting and for the next weeks and basically forever, says, how do we know? There's no Russian meddling. It could be a 400-pound guy sitting in his bed in the basement. Yeah. He's told what's happening. He puts out a cover story. You know, I'm not saying you know, he did this in coordination with the Russians, but he's giving them cover. And to me, that's collusion enough. The book is Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. David Korn, congratulations on this book, and it's great to have you back on our show. It's great to be with John. I hope people get to look at it and they somewhat enjoy reading about this again. <laughs> okay. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, Disneyland Workers. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. Do you have a car, a boat, or a motorcycle that's really ready to go, kind of like on its last legs? It's probably been really good to you. Well, check out this idea. How about let it do one more good thing and benefit KPFK? Your donation is tax deductible, and it's easy to do. For more information about how the donation process works and how to get your tax deduction, all you have to do is call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's it. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, the man who stopped the My Lai Massacre. Tomorrow, Friday, is the 50th anniversary. But first, Disneyland workers. For that, we turn to Peter Dreyer. He teaches politics at Occidental College. He writes for the Huffington Post, The Nation, and other publications. He's the author of many books. One of my favorites is The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. Peter Dreyer, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, is Disneyland the happiest place on Earth? Uh, not if you work there. <laughs> uh, I was part of a group that did a, uh, a survey of Disneyland workers. There are 30,000 workers at the Anaheim Disneyland, and about um, two-thirds of them are unionized. So the unions asked us to survey their members to see whether the anecdotes they'd heard about their own members, about how hungry they were, whether they were living in their cars, uh, and so forth, um, were, uh, were true or they were just isolated incidents. And so we surveyed um, 5,000 of their uh, of the union members and discovered that uh, three-quarters of them uh, can't make ends meet every month. We found out that um, 11% of them have been homeless at some time. 11% have been homeless in the last how long? The last two years. Wow. Yeah. And living in their cars, uh, you know, couch surfing, uh, mm. shelters, all kinds of uh, awful situations. These are full-time workers. These aren't part-time. 
we discovered that um, contrary to the stereotype that Disney people that work at Disneyland are teenagers or college students just working for uh, a little extra spending money, that 91% of the workers at Disneyland uh, consider this their full-time job and their uh, primary source of income, and that um, almost all of them are over 30 years old, and uh, 20% of them are over 55. And yeah. so for many people, this is their career, um, and they work hard at it, and they actually enjoy their jobs in some ways because they like dealing with the public and they like dealing with children, but they go home at night and they um, two-thirds of them can't don't have enough money to feed their children or feed themselves. And um, 42% of them can't afford dental care, even mm. though Disney requires them to smile every day when they mm. meet their guests. And so this is an incredibly profitable enterprise. Uh, last year there were 27 million visitors to Disneyland. They brought in three billion dollars in revenue but the people that spread the fairy dust the magic and make the make the park so profitable they're getting the the raw end of the uh of the stick and and uh uh now they're angry and uh they're going forward with trying to get uh the city of anaheim to uh pass a minimum wage law that would uh raise the minimum wages for disneyland workers to fifteen dollars an hour next year and um uh, up to eighteen dollars an hour uh, in um, in three years. Now you call them Disneyland workers. Isn't the correct term cast members? Well, yeah, the Disney company makes them <laughs> call themselves and calls them cast members. And and to be honest with you, you know, many of them, like I said, they like working there. They like you know, uh, even the people that work at the back of the restaurants or the the housekeepers uh, in the hotels. You know, they, they 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 work at Disneyland, at least they initially do, because they think it'd be a fun place to be. Um, because a lot of them went to Disneyland when they were kids, or they take their yeah. own kids to Disneyland, even though it now costs $135 a day to, to get in. Wait a minute, let's but, just um, pause there. How much does it cost to go to Disneyland? They just raised the price to $135 a day. That's for the whole family? No, that's for one person. For one person, $135? Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, and it's go- it's been going up. You know, meanwhile, since the year two thousand, the average Disneyland worker's salary has gone down. Their average wages are going down fifteen percent, and so um, it's really uh, uh, an awful. You know, it's an example of a basically an abusive employer. You know, they uh, they take advantage of their workers. They take advantage of the mythology of. Uh, of uh, Disneyland as this escapist place where everybody's happy. Um, and, you know, what we found is that after people have worked there for a while, some of the fairy dust begins to wear off and they're not as happy as they were when they first got there. <laughs> you know, um, I, I looked up uh, Disneyland workers and I found information like Steve Martin got his start doing magic tricks on Main Street. Kevin Costner got his start as a guide on the Jungle Cruise. Michelle Pfeiffer got her start in the Main Street Parade playing Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Makes it seem like a great place for young people to start out. Well, you know, we talked to lots of workers who've been there for 15, 20, even 30 years, and it was much less of a repressive employer, uh, you know, 25 or 30 years ago. Really? Steve Martin was doing his magic. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's gotten much worse. 
uh, particularly since Walt Disney died, although Walt Disney was, you know, a right-wing Republican and not a, an anti-union as well. But but uh, it was much more of a paternalistic co- company because Walt Disney really wanted the brand of Disneyland, particularly which opened in 1955. He wanted the brand to be something that people would admire, and he had to find ways to get people to come from all over the country to to visit the place. But now that it's uh, established itself as this tourist destination, um, and Disney is a global company right now that you know makes movies and uh, publishes books and owns ABC and so forth. You know, Disneyland and the other resorts it owns in Florida and China and Paris or so forth. This is just one part of their empire. Yeah. Um, and it's the part of the empire that has the most uh, capital investments. It's very expensive to have all those rides and uh, other physical improvements, and so they take it out on the workers, basically. So, and, so uh, um, uh, Walt, Walt, uh, as you reminded us, Walt is gone. The current CEO is Robert Iger. How is he doing? Yeah, well, he's making, uh, this year he's making 35 mil, and um, he had a deal with the board of directors that if the uh, Disneyland's purchase of, uh, of Fox, of 20th Century Fox, uh, went through, um, he would get a increase in his compensation to $162 million this year. $162 million? $162 million. That's for right. one year? Yeah. For one year? In one year. In for... one year. But I have to say one of the things uh, that gives me the most pleasure about having done this report is that at the annual stockholders meeting uh, in Houston, which was uh, two weeks ago, they held it in Houston so that you know not many people can show up, although some of the union folks did show up. At the annual shareholders meeting, the board of directors voted uh, and the shareholders voted uh, against giving him this uh, salary increase. And so uh, I think the, the 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 nation and international international publicity about our report and the the growing discontent among Disney workers and maybe uh, Disney shareholders has made a difference. And uh, you know he may get it eventually because the the vote was just advisory. But it was a nice uh, uh, kick in the butt to uh, Robert Iger. He lives in a twenty-six million dollar home in Brentwood with uh, seven bedrooms and tennis courts and a swimming pool. And meanwhile, you know, like I said, many of the people that work for him are either homeless or they're paying sixty, seventy percent of their income for rent, and they have to they have to um, the typical Disney employee commutes over an hour, and many of them commute uh, an hour and a half or more because they can't find housing in Anaheim. And the Disney company has consistently opposed the construction of any low-income housing in Anaheim, which would, of course, mostly go to their own employees. And Mm so they're not passive victims of, you know, the housing crisis and so forth. They pay abysmally low wages, and then they fight against any affordable housing. So this is a a a, a, a greedy company with a, a great uh, iconic image, and uh, we did our report to um, to change that image and also to uh, sort of lay the groundwork uh, for the you know the possibility that the workers might be able to do something about it. And as I said earlier, they are doing something about it. Next November, there's going to be a uh, a ballot measure uh, for Anaheim voters to vote to require Disneyland to pay $15 an hour next year and up to $18 an hour in three years. And so, uh, and that'll add to the local economy. I mean, uh, the city of Anaheim 
has given Disneyland about a billion dollars over the last decade or so, about a billion dollars in tax breaks and other subsidies so it could, you know, build parking lots and so forth. And, of course, Disney can't say, if you don't do this, we're going to move to China or we're going to move to Mexico because they're, right. they're stuck in Anaheim. Yes. So the people of uh, Anaheim are now going to, you know, hold Disney accountable, and and uh, I assume that the, the vote will go in favor of raising wages, although it'll be a battle and Disney will spend a lot of money to try to stop it. We've only got about three minutes left here. I want to talk about the unions. You said there were 10 different unions representing Disneyland workers and the two-thirds of Disneyland workers are uh, are unionized. Now, I, I didn't know that. What, what are the unions and why haven't they gotten a better deal for uh, uh, for their, their their members? Yeah, well, you know, the, the uh, hotel... Housekeepers and the custodians, the musicians, the artists, the puppeteers, the makeup artists, um, the people that work in the restaurants, uh, most of the people you see on the ground if you visit Disneyland, they're in uh, different unions, uh, the Service Employees Union, Unite Here, the Hotel Workers Union, the Musicians Union, and so forth. There's uh, the Teamsters Union. But, you know, for most of the last 25 or 30 years, they've each bargain separately mm. with Disney, and they mm. haven't shared information. And they've—it's you know kind of the worst uh, aspect of the American labor movement is the sort of divide and conquer that the business sector has been able to do. But this project uh, was the first time they've actually worked together. You know, they they worked on this project together uh, to to provide the information to let us do the survey of their members. Uh, because they they knew they were getting screwed by their uh, their divisions, and so this campaign to um, uh, to raise the minimum wage and to and to now bargain collectively and to join forces during their bargaining. This is you know this is a new age. This is a new era in uh, among the unions at Disney. You know Walt Disney was a big union buster back yeah. in the 30s and 40s, and uh, the current regime of uh, executives has carried it out as well, but. Uh, the unions are now pulling together, and uh, that's that's a hopeful sign. And if our listeners uh, want to uh, keep up to date on the campaign in Anaheim, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, the L.A. Times and the Orange County Register are likely to cover it, um, and uh, so they'll find out about that. If they want to read our report, they can go on the uh, Occidental College website or the Economic Roundtable website and see the report. Um, and uh, if they're interested in find, in helping, particularly if you've got listeners living in, uh, you know, near Disneyland and in Long Beach or in Orange County, uh, they're looking for people to help with the campaign to raise the minimum wage, and so they can contact the Coalition of Resort Labor Unions. That's the name of the group of unions that have come together, uh, and uh, or they can uh, contact the um, the uh, Orange County Labor Federation and. Uh, or go on their website, and they'll be um, they'll be kept up to date. It's really it's really going to be a big battle to raise the minimum wage for Disney workers, but they'll need all the help they can get, uh, including that of sort of middle class people that uh, you know aren't working at Disneyland, but uh, think that Disney has taken a lot of their tax dollars and not given much back to the community. The Coalition of Resort Labor Unions. Peter Dreyer, he wrote about how Disneyland's workers are undervalued, disrespected, and underpaid for the L.A. Times op-ed page. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Sure, John. It's been a pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the man who stopped the My Lai Massacre. That's in a minute 
on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. Hello, this is Hector Elizondo. I'm asking you to help keep KPFK fiercely independent. As you know, in today's political climate, it's more important than ever to keep free speech alive and well. KPFK just made it easier for you to make sure that happens. Simply use your new text donate program. You'll be supporting your favorite KPFK programs, and you'll also help reduce the number of days in our next fund drive simply by using your cell phone. Just enter the letters KPFK in a text to the number 41444 and add the amount you'd like to give. It's that simple. Once again, just text KPFK to the number 41444 to donate 25, 50, 100, a million, whatever you can. We want to shorten the next fund drive, and with your help, we can do it. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Tomorrow, March 16th, is the 50th anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, the day Americans killed more than 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians in one hamlet. Many people don't know how it ended. An American pilot landed there and at gunpoint told the American troops to stop the killing. And they did. That helicopter pilot was Hugh Thompson. He's the man who stopped the My Lai Massacre. I spoke with him in February 2000 for KPFK. March 16th, 1968, you were a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and what was your mission that day? Uh, To provide... uh aerial scout reconnaissance to the uh, ground trips we had uh, inserted on the on the ground that day and uh, try to locate, get out in front of them, try to locate the enemy, draw fire from the enemy and let the uh, infantry people know, you know, where, where it was coming from or where to watch out for or take it out. So then that morning you took off, you flew over the hamlet of My Lai, I understand you didn't see uh, many Viet Cong troops that that morning. When we on our first pass, right after the infantry had been inserted, and they were inserted away from the village, they had you know they had a little area to cross, open area rice fields to get to the village. We made our first pass out in front of them. We did see one uh, Viet Cong exiting the village uh, with a weapon. I told Larry to you know get him uh and uh larry, larry was your gunner larry colburn yeah, yeah right and uh we missed him and he made it into the tree line and got away and that was the only sign of danger we encountered that whole day we never received a round we never saw anybody with a weapon and no weapons were captured that day so what did you see when you flew over the that hamlet of milai a lot of people moving around. Uh, no resistance. There was no fire. At some time, knowing where we had to go fly from to get there on station, I would estimate that I probably stayed on on station about probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And that would give the infantry enough time, you know, to 
approach the perimeter of the village, at which time we would have to go get refueled. On a normal operation, I'd be relieved with another team, just like my team, a scout helicopter and two guns. For some reason, there was no relief that day, and the only thing I can contribute that to is there was nothing going on. What did you see that made you think something uh, was going wrong on the ground with this mission? Apparently, well, we had left to go get refueled, and we came back, and we started noticing these, you know, large number of bodies everywhere, uh, and throughout the village. That well, not throughout the village, in certain areas of the village, they weren't there before. Uh, people on the road, you know, dead, wounded. And just sitting there saying, you know, God, how'd this happen? Uh, what's going on? And we we started thinking what might have happened, but you didn't want to accept that thought because if you accepted it, that means your own fellow Americans and people you were there to protect were doing something very evil. And, and who were the people who were... Uh lying in the uh, in the roads and, and in the ditch, wounded and killed? Uh, they were non-combatants. They were old women, old men, children, kids, babies. Babies. Uh, no weapons. Now don't, don't get me wrong. Now, every, every person that died that day or got murdered could have been a Viet Cong, just with no weapon visible. Mm-hmm. They could have been a Viet Cong sympathizer. But the way I was trained and the way American soldiers are trained is if Hitler walks out of a bunker and lays his weapon down, he's no longer your enemy. He is a prisoner of war. Uh, we're talking with Hugh Thompson. He's the man who stopped the My Lai massacre, and his story is told in the book The Forgotten Hero of My Lai, the Hugh Thompson story by Trent Angers. I'm John Wiener. We're live on KPFK. So, Mr. Thompson, you saw these bodies of uh, unarmed non-combatants from the air in your helicopter. What did you do then? At one time we saw a wounded uh, young lady uh, kind of thrashing about, and uh, we called on the radio to get some help over to her, a medic, you know, to help her out because there was no weapon visible, no weapon there. And a few minutes later we, ba- we backed off from a hover, you said we were flying a helicopter. Well, my maximum altitude that day was probably 20 foot off the ground. Hmm. And uh, we backed away from, popped smoke on her, backed up a little bit so the rotor wash wouldn't blow everybody away that was coming up to check on her. What does that mean, you popped smoke on her? Well, you carry smoke uh, canisters with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to identify a location, you know, you pull a pin, something like a hand grenade, just a smoke grenade. So this is a marker, so people yes. can find this spot. So we popped smoke and uh, backed away a little bit, and a few minutes later, we saw this uh, uh, captain walk up, nudge her with his foot, and step back, put, put his weapon on automatic, and killed her. And uh, we couldn't understand that. There was a lot of confusion, you know, in my aircraft right now, because we had call for help for an individual and got her killed. So what did you do then? Uh, we continued to recon and 
the next big thing, I guess, was we came across a ditch that had, oh, I'd say over 100 bodies in it. Uh, and we noticed some of them were still alive. And we were thinking, how'd these people get in the ditch? And we had the thought coming in our mind, but it, I wouldn't accept it at first. Because I tried to come up with scenarios of how they got in the ditch, like they were hit with the artillery when it came in. Or when the Americans came through, they just gathered up all the dead bodies that had been killed by the artillery and thrown in the ditch. And we couldn't live with that one either because there were, you know, people in the ditch that weren't wounded. And then the thought kind of sucked in that these people might have been marched down in the ditch and slaughtered. So we stopped again, sat down, got out of the aircraft, went up to a uh, lieutenant and a sergeant, Cody Harrison, wounded civilians in the ditch. Could they help them out? Uh, said they could help them out of their misery. They could help them out of their misery. Yes, sir. And I said, oh, come on, guys, quit joking around here. They said, okay, we'll take care of it. So I got back in the aircraft and took off. Uh, Glenn Andrada, who was my crew chief, I was sitting on my left, and I took the aircraft off and made my turn. We heard machine gun fire going off, and then Glenn comes over the, the intercom and just says, my God, they're firing into the ditch. We're, we're, let me just remind our listeners, we're talking with uh, Hugh Thompson, the man who stopped the My Lai massacre. His story is told in the book, The Forgotten Hero of My Lai, The Hugh Thompson Story by Trent Angers. So you saw what happened in the ditch. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see it. Glenn did. Glenn did. Uh, you land then. Sometime after that, you landed again. We saw. Uh, well, we couldn't deny what was going on. And uh, I want to bring out the infantry soldier has the uh, hardest job there is in the military. I think, and I admire him as long as they, you know do their job honorably and how they were taught. We put 190 people on the ground that day. Only about 13 to 18, maybe 23 took part in this. Okay. Not everybody did, and everybody, a lot of other people were as outraged as I was. But later, we saw uh, some civilians hiding in the bunker, uh, cowering, kind of looking out the door, and saw some advancing Americans coming that way, and... I'd asked for help twice now and got people killed. So I just figured it was time to, you know, do something, just, you know, not let these people get killed. So landed the aircraft in between the Americans and the Vietnamese. Told my crew chief and gunner to cover me, got out of the aircraft, went over to the American side and said, you know, there's some uh, civilians right up ahead in the bunker. Can you help them out? And I stowed them with a hand grenade, and I guess that's when I got a little hot and told them just to hold their people there. I think I can do better. I've already told my people to shoot if y'all should. Let's be cool. Whatever. And I thank God to this day that uh, everybody did stay cool and nobody opened up. So so uh, you told these American troops that if they, uh, if they fired on the Vietnamese uh, civilians in the bunker— 
that you and your crew would open fire on them. Is that right? Yes, sir. So basically you put your own life and the lives of your crew in between those Vietnamese civilians and the American soldiers who were advancing on them at My Lai. You, you risk your lives to protect those Vietnamese civilians that day. Well, it didn't come to that, so I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. The, uh, it was time to stop it, and I figured at that point uh, that was the only way, you know, that this uh, madness or whatever you want to call it could be stopped. Well, then you did stop it that day. We are, we are given credit for that, yes, sir. Well, Hugh Thompson, let, let me just say to you, uh, thank you. Thank you for what you did that day, March 16th, 1968, in, in My Lai. Uh, thank you very much, sir. You know, I, I know um, a lot of people uh, call you a hero, but you've been somewhat reluctant to, uh, to accept that. Why, why is that? We were just we were doing our job, and that's what we were trained to do. I think that a hero, definition of a hero is someone who, goes far and beyond, beyond the call of duty or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to express it. We're just doing our jobs. Uh, Hugh Thompson, people, some, uh, people say uh, civilians sometimes get killed in the confusion of the battlefield. Uh, what do you say to that? That's a fact. I have probably uh, killed some civilians before. And is that what happened in, in Milai that day? Civilians no, got sir. killed in the heat of the battle? No, sir. There was no battle. And people also say, well, things like this happen. That's why we say war is hell. What do you say to that argument? I say, yes, war is hell. But people refuse to, I think, believe the ones who want to deny it. They haven't studied it. They don't realize how big this was. This was taking unarmed people. They can be enemy. That's, that's, that doesn't matter. They're taking unarmed civilians, in this case, or enemy, putting their hands over their head, marching them down in the ditch, setting machine guns up on either side and automatic weapons, and killing them. It happened. Uh, I've had, you know, veterans come up and say, God, thank you for what you did. You stood up for us. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I stood up for Americans. Uh, Trent, let me ask you a question. Trent Andrews, author of The Forgotten Hero of Me Lie, the Hugh Thompson story. Uh, to me, one of the most amazing thing in this very strong and moving book is it's called... Appendix number one, it's a list of the 504 people killed in the My Lai Massacre. The names of every one of them, Vietnamese name, age, and whether they were uh, male or female. I have never seen a list like this before. How did you decide to put this in the book, and, and what did it take to put this list together? The Embassy of Vietnam in Washington, D.C. helped us to, uh, to get this list. Um, these are are only 504 of the 2.3 million or 2.7 million, whatever the number is. And this was an effort to, to humanize the, uh, the people. Um, we did a st something of an analysis of 
by age and so forth, and we found that um, um, there were about 50 people who were age three years old or younger, Ugh. which is to say age one, two, or three. Fifty. Uh, right, there were 50 uh, babies, essentially. There were 69 people who were between the ages of 4 and 7. Uh, there were 91 between the ages of 8 and 12. Um, I think that these numbers speak for themselves as to the horror of what happened at Milan. Uh, uh, Trent Andrews, uh, the book, The Forgotten Hero of Milai, says that during this period where the Army investigation was going on, there was an attempt to bring charges against Hugh Thompson. What can you tell us about that? Um, the notion that any American war, any American soldier would be convicted of the same sorts of crimes that the Nazis were convicted of, of course, was unacceptable to, the, to these members of the House Armed Services Committee. So they went, uh, they went about the process of legally attempting to sabotage the Milad trials to turn, um, to turn the tables on Hugh Thompson, to set him up to be court-martialed, and to send him to Fort Leavenworth for a good part of the rest of his life, um, for, for mutiny, essentially, or for, uh, you know, to try to portray him as, as working against the American cause. I did research in the National Archives and found thousands of, if not tens of thousands of letters and petitions that people signed in support of Kelly, which was, which was scary. Uh, Hugh Thompson, uh, you testified against Lieutenant Kelly in his court-martial, and he was eventually found guilty. Was justice done in this case, in your opinion? I don't think so. Why not? Well, first of all, I don't, you know, I don't blame the public for, you know, getting involved and getting outraged about, uh, you know, and supporting Cali during all this. Uh, I contribute that is they didn't have the facts. And uh, if somebody goes out and uh, murders or responsible for murdering 504 people, and I think the, the U.S. counts lower than that. That's the Vietnamese count. I personally think the Vietnamese missed a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think life in prison later reduced to, uh, I think it was 20 years in hard labor, later reduced to uh, 10 years, I believe it was, and then after serving three days in a stockade, be given a full pardon. I don't really think that justice was done for 504 people. We only have a couple of minutes left to talk to you, too. I wanted to follow the story to the to this happier ending. Uh, Hugh, you were finally awarded the Soldier's Medal by the Army, acknowledging the value of uh, what you did that was awarded on March 6, 1998 at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. You've also recently taken a trip back to Vietnam. You went back to the hamlet of My Lai, and you met some of the people whose lives you saved back in 1968. Can you tell us a little about that trip? The trip was uh, very much a roller coaster. There were real good highs and 
very low lows. Uh, one of the ladies that we had uh, helped out that day came up to me and asked, "Where? Why? Why didn't the people who committed these acts come back with you?" And I was just, you know, devastated at that. Yeah. And then she finished her sentence. She said, so we could forgive them. Mm. I'm not man enough to do that. I'm sorry. I, I, I wish I should be. I wish I was, but I won't lie to anybody. I'm, I'm not that much of a man. And you said there were some highs as well as that low. There's always a uh, question in my mind. Did anybody know? We all aren't like that. Did they know that somebody tried to help? And yes, they did know that. So that that aspect of it made me feel, you know, real good. Well, my conclusion here today is that the massacre of 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians at the hamlet of My Lai it was committed by Americans, but it was also stopped by Americans. And Hugh Thompson, thanks to you. Thank you for what you did at Milai, and thank you for talking to us today. Thank you, sir, very much. Hugh Thompson, he died in January 2006. He was only 63. I spoke with him here at KPFK in February 2000. Tomorrow, Friday, March 16th, is the 50th anniversary of the Milai Massacre. Well, that's it for today. I want to thank my other guest, David Korn, talked about his new book, Russian Roulette. Peter Dreyer talked about Disney workers. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned. Coming up at 4 o'clock tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. If you've missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump, what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.